Good afternoon to all of you. And good morning. Never forget those in Hawaii who are getting up at 8.30 in the morning, or at least starting the service at 8.30 in the morning, when most of us get to sleep in on the Sabbath. So they have to get up quite early in order to, to start by 8. You heard uh, about Lord Regnier and the announcements. He's sitting here today, and uh, he and his wife, Betty, just gave us a beautiful rendition and special music of the South of the Earth. So he is, well, let's not say great. He's physically great, but uh, uh, before God and before us, I'm sure that sounded wonderful. I know it did to us. As they were singing, I mean, God does tell us that we are the salt of the Earth, and salt is not a great a percentage of what is in, let's say, a plate of food. And we've had sermonettes and sermons about that in the past, but I couldn't help but thinking that it won't be long before the world will say, there's too much salt. You probably only have to think about that one too much. Now, I've been going through this series on the minor prophets in the New Testament church, and we come to the book of Amos today. Uh, however, there's one thought I want to pick up from the book of Hosea. Uh, this one had not really been a focus, or I hadn't focused on it until John was giving one of his sermons on the providence of God recently and was going through Hosea 12. But it does tie in very well with the insert sermon I did last time about who Israel is, who Judah is, uh, can we make a parallel between the houses of Israel and their separation and the church today and the separation that is occurring? But in Hosea 12, verse 10, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. The word similitudes is what leaps out at me. It means similarities. I've used similarities between what was happening or has happened in Moses' day and the prophets' day in the king's day with what is happening in our day. So it backs up and further underlines the approach that we've been using to show that God is talking to the New Testament church in the Old Testament prophecies. This word could also be translated prop, I mean uh, parables. And that's what a parable is. It's a similitude or a shadow of other things. So the exact detail may not be there because you're dealing with lots of different people over time. You're dealing with lots of different conditions. But the similarities will be there, he says, between what happened in the past and what is happening now. So we can't take perhaps everything and every detail uh, exactly as written and say, well, this applies to the church right now. But the conditions in the church will always be similar, he said. And that's how the prophets could write what they wrote thousands of years ago under inspiration, and we would find similar conditions today. So as we continue here, we will see that the conditions that Hosea, Joel, and Amos spoke of are very, very similar to what we are dealing with today. Now, I began this series in the book of Hosea, which means, as a matter of review, of review here, Yahweh saves. And he shows the great sin of idolatry and harlotry that God's church is in today. And now that even, no matter how great this sin is, 
he is capable of saving us out of it. So, on the one hand, he backhands us, and on the other hand, he extends an arm of hope. Because no matter how bad we've been, he says, I can save you. I will save you. Then we go to the book of Joel, which is the first lesson in how he will set his hand to save. And that is that we must recognize the Lord is God. And that's what the name Joel means in Hebrew. The Lord is God. And from that title, he goes on to show how he will prove that he is God. He shows he will put us and the world through a great ringer, under great pressure. That's the way diamonds are made. And that ultimately, the day of the Lord is going to come in which all men are going to have to admit the Lord is God. To those of us who can get the picture ahead of time, we will be far, far better off if we will understand who the real God is as opposed to the gods we have around us. So, Hosea, Joel, and now Amos. Amos means burden. And as we get into this sermon, we'll see that God lays a heavy burden on Israel's enemies and upon both Israel and Judah. But understanding just who the burden is is perhaps a little bit clouded. I hope to clear that up as we go through the sermon. Now, Hosea, Joel, and Amos are what I would call a triple whammy against God's people. These three prophets prophesied contemporaneously, all at the same time. Uh, Amos and Joel, uh, perhaps not entirely, because Hosea apparently uh, prophesied for a little longer than the others, but they were all contemporary at one time or another, and all three shouting the messages that we read today. Now, it's easy for us, I suppose, to think all that Joel ever said was in these three chapters, or all that Hosea said were in those 12 or 13 chapters, and Amos the same with eight, I think it's nine. But that's only what God recorded to send on down. These men probably traveled all over Israel and Judah, preaching the same message in every town. It went on and on and on, year after year after year. And God only preserved a certain amount of it, the, the basic message for you and me. I mean, look how much James and Peter have in the Bible. Very little. Paul has more. But they preached for years and years a message of the gospel. And we only have a very small part of it preserved for us. So if you think it gets tiresome hearing over and over again what God expects of us, keep in mind that ancient Israel heard it year after year. And when Hosea, Joel, and Amos finally quit prophesying, Isaiah picked it up and hammered on them for 40 more years. At least 40 years according to the commentaries. So don't feel picked on, I guess that's what I'm saying. God is getting a message across to us. Now, we will find that the book of Amos, while it is heavy, also has a great deal of hope within it and begins to show some of the solutions to the problems we today face. 
even though it is burden, it is also hope. Now let's get into the book of Amos itself. <clears throat> the words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So this book is addressed primarily to Israel. But he also includes Judah in the opening salutation. And indeed he includes both in the book, and later on he talks about the whole family. So it's not just those guys, but if we can use the analogy I used in my last sermon of Israel being worldwide and Judah being the splits, those who have come off, we'll find that there's a message in here for us as well as for worldwide because he talks about the whole family, the whole church. And this was given two years as a warning before a tremendous earthquake occurred which is mentioned by Zechariah and which stayed in profane history for a long time. They recognized God's hand behind a great earthquake which occurred. Will there be another parallel, a similarity? There are some indications in Isaiah about clearing the rocks out of the road to prepare the way for the people. Uh, I don't know, but there are little hints here and there that there may be some more earthquake to come. Certainly many prophecies say there will be earthquake in various and sundry places. So maybe there's a great one coming. Who knows? Because it's written here, and this is an end-time book for us. Is it a spiritual earthquake, or is it a physical earthquake? We're already experiencing a certain spiritual earthquake. Maybe it's both. Who knows? We will wait and see. Now, verse 2, And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. So even though this might be primarily aimed at Israel, where does it come from? It comes from Judah, from Zion and Jerusalem. Those Zion was a smaller circle within the circle of Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah. So that's where the message comes from. And the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn. First thing he does is says the shepherds are in trouble. And you all know Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, Malachi 1 and 2, uh, about the ministry and how the flocks will be taken away. So the message here is that the, the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. The beauty of the church is going to suffer. Carmel was a mount known and renowned for its beauty. Now I'm not going to go into every detail of this because Hosea presents the central problem in Israel and Judah, and that is idolatry and harlotry. Spiritually speaking is the way we would look at that today. Amos goes into great detail about the sins that we have today and that Israel has as a physical nation. Both are there. Well, John did... How many tapes was it on the book of Amos? It was a Bible study years ago. I think it was somewhere around 20 tapes. I remember listening to them anyway. And went into a great deal of detail. And there's some of this in the booklet that came as a result of that Bible study. So I'm not going to take that kind of time obviously to go through this but hit some of the highlights to tie it in with us today 
If you want more of the detail that Amos adds, uh, I would recommend you get that Bible study series by John uh, and go through it because he points out very, very beautifully a lot of the problems. And though uh, perhaps our perspective has changed somewhat since he gave that Bible study series, uh, even well, even then, he tied it into modern day. But if you want to plug the church in specifically, I'm sure that Bible study series will have even more meaning to you today than it did when you might have heard it 10 or 12 years ago. Now, God first addresses the enemies of Israel. He's going to address Israel later on specifically, and most of the book has to do with that. But he does address the enemies first. Israel had severe enemies. He first addresses Damascus or Syria, and the commentaries say that Syria was one of the most oppressive of Israel's enemies. But he says because of their sins and how they threshed in Gilead, which is in Manasseh, I will send a fire to the house of Hatziel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad, in verse 4, and it will break the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants. I don't want to get into a lot of detail here because I want to deal with the sections of Amos which have to do specifically with us, but just make note that our enemies will be taken care of. Even though this is a heavy burden against those enemies at the beginning of the book of Amos, it should give us hope that God is going to take care of our enemies. And the church has always had enemies. Whether it be the early New Testament church and the false apostles and ministers that the ministry was fighting back then, or whether it's the state of California or whoever might come against us as enemies from the Gentiles, or whether it be Gentiles who actually entered into the church as false apostles and false prophets and tried to destroy the church from within. We've already seen the within struggle, and we will see the without struggle with armies coming against us or peoples coming against us, those who are not spiritual Jews are Israelites, but are spiritual Gentiles. So there's great hope here that whenever those enemies arise, they will be put down. The state of California ultimately was, and others have been. We still have enemies within the church who are taking the church in the wrong way and destroying it from within. God says he'll take care of them. He goes down to verse 6. Gaza, which was in Philistia, the Philistines, as you recall, were always a thorn in the side of the Israelites. There is one point I want to make here in a couple of these about the enemies, and this, this one is in verse 6, the end of it. Uh, one of the transgressions and the punishments that are coming on Philistia is because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. The Bible says Esau is Edom. One of the chief enemies of Jacob has always been and always will be until this thing turns completely around, the Edomites. Now God tells us very clearly we're not to despise them because they are our brother, but we must recognize them as enemies, and yet how does Christ tell us to treat our enemies? So it's not a matter of putting down it's not a matter of lashing out at. We treat our enemies with respect. And we need to be very, very careful in how we approach those who are enemies. We fled from enemies in worldwide. 
And the next book that we will examine after Amos, obviously, is Obadiah, which has to do with Edom. So I wanted to point out at the beginning that the Philistines delivered Israel up to Edom and that they will be punished for that. You go down to uh, verse 11, well, no, 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 verse 9 first. Tyre also delivered up the whole captivity, verse 9, to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. So two separate enemies of Israel, some of their greatest protagonists, delivered Israel up to Edom. I don't want to go into that anymore because it becomes a very clear-cut case in the next book, and we'll save most of that to then. Uh, one of the major enemies, verse 11, is Edom. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he did pursue his brother with the sword, reminds you of Revelation 12 maybe, and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. Even though he sought repentance there in the book of Hebrews bitterly and with tears, he could not get past that hate for Jacob. And God says it will be there and tear forever, or perpetually, and the wrath will be there forever. So whoever the Edomites are today, they still hate Israel. And they will do as much damage to Israel before this whole thing is over as they possibly can, both within and without the church, as we shall see when we get to that book. But God is not going to let them get away with it. And then Ammon, or Jordan, Verse 13, uh, For three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they ripped up the woman with child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their own border. Perhaps there are spiritual Ammonites in the church who broke up the women, or who will break up the women. Women are churches in prophecy. Now, as a fulfillment of some of these, or a partial fulfillment, or an original fulfillment, Nebuchadnezzar did destroy, did conquer these peoples later on in history. But these are not just written, these books, as historical accounts. They are written because they apply today. So we're not done dealing with our enemies as yet. He, go, he continues it in chapter 2 with Moab. And Ammon and Moab, both we feel, are Jordan, are different groups of Jordanians. But let's skip on down to us. <laughs> That's what we need to deal with, is ourselves. Let God deal with our enemies, we must deal with ourselves. Because he says here that he will deal with us. Chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments and their lies caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked. Well, now how does that apply to you and me? Have we despised God's laws? Have we not kept his commandments? Well, Revelation 3 seems to indicate that the church would fall into lukewarmness and Laodiceanism. Well, what does that become tantamount to? Idolatry. 
doing our thing turning away from God as the Lord and Master and saying I want to serve other gods I want to serve materialism I want to serve my television my CD player my radio my whatever rather than having our focus entirely upon God not that those things are necessarily evil of themselves but if we have too much interest in them and not enough focus on God then we're breaking the first commandment so we're despising the commandments of God simply by our attitudes and lack of devotion and adherence to our relationship with him love toward man is the second great commandment the ministry has abused the flocks hirelings have done their thing rather than doing what is God what God wanted done with the flocks at times God is very very angry about that some even worship their own idea of what needs doing perhaps in this day and age as opposed to listening carefully to the scriptures about what God wants done that's putting our own ideas sometimes ahead of what God's idea is we must get in tune he says verse 5 I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem I've referred back to Isaiah 5 many times Zechariah 11 many many other scriptures which show the spiritual houses are going to be torn down the palaces will go and Amos echoes that right here Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. Money grubbing. <coughs> Getting all they can. Does that equate to worldwide? Is that similar? Or is that a similitude of what is happening in the worldwide church of God today? How much of the money from the sale of Big Sandy do you think are going to go to the poor and the widow and the needy and the orphan? in that church how much from the sale of Pasadena if it goes through will go to the poor and the needy of the flock very similar the pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek and a man and his father will go into the same maid to profane my holy name well there's another parallel that seems to fit Joe Sr. went after the woman, the woman of this world, the Protestant woman, and his son is following in his footsteps. They've gone into the same maid. And what has it done? It's profaned God's holy name. They lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar, every altar, see, they've gone the way of the Protestants. They've associated themselves in the Council of Churches, which is all kinds of Protestant churches in the same group. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. I think the similarity there is pretty plain, too. Right there in the auditorium dedicated to the great God, they worship Baal. wine of the condemned could be a false doctrine at the same time doing it in the auditorium that was set aside and dedicated as the house of God 
verse 9, Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Could this equate to enemies who came? The giant of California who came against the church, and God destroyed that over a period of time. The, the state did not prevail, and then it was turned over to these people who don't pay any attention to God or to the doctrine and the knowledge and the way that we knew that was first delivered to us through Herbert Armstrong. They've turned from that in spite of God delivering the church with a mighty arm. Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you through 40 years of the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. There's a similarity there. <coughs> many, many years Herbert Armstrong led us out of Egypt, out of sin. But we kind of forgot that. He says, I brought you to me, to the church, but you weren't converted. You went the wrong way. And I raised up, verse 11, of your sons for prophets and for your young men for Nazarites. Is it not so, you children of Israel, says the Lord? Whom did God use under Herbert Armstrong? Young men trained to go out as prophets or foretellers and young men for the ministry. The parallel is so close here. But what happened? Verse 12. You gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. We want to hear smooth, simple, easy things. We want to hear Protestant doctrines that tell us all we need is love in our hearts. We don't want to hear hard prophecies. Don't prophesy. Here, have a little wine. Take it easy. Settle down, they told the ministry. But God says, don't settle down. He says, cry aloud and spare not. Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Now, what does that mean? Remember the word Amos and what it means? Burden? God is saying here, you are a burden on me. You press me down like sheaves of wheat or barley on a cart. You lay me down with your sins. I checked that in the New King James since it was here, and I had not noticed in my King James margin an alternate translation which seems to make this just the opposite. It says in my King James margin, I will press your place as a cart full of sheaves presses. In other words, I will press weight down on you. I can actually live with both those concepts because this is very heavy here. God is going to lay a message heavily upon us as a burden. And yet on the other hand, are we not a burden to God? Think of ancient Israel. Jesus Christ married Israel. And she went into harlotry, into idolatry. She became a burden in that marriage. Christ ultimately had to divorce her. He had no choice, because she would not be a wife to him. Stubborn and rebellious, self-willed, seeking her own way, rather than seeking Christ with all her heart. So she became a burden. Let's look at some scriptures quickly to see who might be the burden here. 
Matthew 11, 29 through 30. Matthew 11, 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The yoke of God is light. It's actually easy to pull. Hosea 11, verse 4. Hosea 11. These prophets quote each other once in a while. Where Christ talks about his relationship with Ephraim, the firstborn. Verse 3. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. I drew them with with cords of a man, with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat to them. God said, I'm taking the weight off. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven, the burden can be removed, the cart can be unhitched from behind us, we don't have to drag the baggage around. He is there to lift our weight. Now notice Lamentations. Lamentations 1 and verse 14. The yoke of my transgressions is... Well, this is uh, Jeremiah talking here. Verse 13. From above he has sent fire to my bones, and it prevailed against them. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. Speaking of God. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are reefed and come upon my neck. He has made my strength to fall. The Lord has delivered me into their hands, from whom I am not able to rise up. So it is the yoke of our transgressions that weighs us down. If we do not repent and change our approach and our focus, God says that becomes a burden. Sin is a burden, a heavy burden. So it is our transgressions that create the yoke and the weight upon us. Notice Isaiah 58. This one you're probably very familiar with. It gets read a lot on the Day of Atonement. Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. What kind of yoke? Sin. He talks about that as he goes on through the chapter. Fasting is to help us break that yoke. Isaiah 52, 2. Let's go back just a little bit here. Here he's talking about Israel in captivity to Babylon, which we find ourselves in very much today. And I gave a sermon on this a while back, where there are three awake awakes given here in chapter 51 and 52. But he says in verse 2 of chapter 52, Shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit down, quit laying down and letting Babylon walk all over you. We give in so easily, don't we, brethren? We let this Babylonian system around us walk all over us. Bernice Frown sent me a little thing the other day, which would make a good sermonette, I think, um, having to do with Satan having a convention and all the things he does to make us so busy, so busy, busy, busy with this, with that, and the other thing, that we lose our focus on God, and it fits the church so well today. The way these email things go, I see heads nodding. It probably got sent to a lot of you and probably to Australia and South Africa by now. But that was a good one. 
We are to sit up, not lay down and be run over by conditions we have around us. But it's not easy to break that yoke of Babylon. God's yoke is easy. His burden is light. But Babylon's yoke in sin is very, very heavy. Jeremiah 2. We're doing a little bit of a word study here, I guess. Jeremiah 2, verse 20. For of old time I have broken your yoke and burst your bands. God has been willing at any time to lift the burden that we carry. But we are not willing to change and shake the yoke off, so we still feel burdened. And you said, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree you wandered playing the harlot. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, holy a ripe seed. Did God work through Herbert Armstrong, planting a ripe seed and pre pre uh, preparing a good vine? How then are you turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine to me? How have you departed so much? You've taken the wrong yoke here. Chapter 5, verse 1 of Jeremiah. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, or the church, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places thereof, if you can find a man, if there be any that executes judgment, that seeks the truth, and I will pardon it. Did not Richard read this last week? And though they say, The Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are not your eyes upon the truth? God is still looking at the truth while we're running around doing other things. You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. Now keep this verse in mind as we go on through Amos. Because we are going to see, sad as it is, that the trouble we see in the church today is destined to increase mightily. It is going to intensify beyond our comprehension. And Amos lays it out very clearly. Because they have refused to receive correction, they have made their faces harder than a rock, they have refused to return. And what does God do when God's people refuse to return? Go back and read Deuteronomy in Leviticus 26 and 28. And you will find that he scatters and destroys. So it's our problem. We are the burden. What did Richard say last week? Three points. We complain and murmur. We're willing to be misled. And we're apt to test God. very, very close to what I'm saying today through these scriptures. He used Jeremiah several chapters back there to show that. That becomes, Can you imagine Israel out there, three, three and a half million of them, whatever they were, wandering through the desert, had their tummies full, had water out of rocks, and yet God could just hear this complain, complain, whine, whine, whine. Did that become a burden to God? He became so frustrated, he said, I'm going to let you all die in the wilderness. You want to complain about me? Go ahead. But you'll die for it. Do you like to hear your kids in the other room, whether you have two or ten, 
complaining and whining and crying and belly aching about dinner if you're cooking something special for them and they don't happen maybe to like it. Or whatever their complaint might be, you hear this whine like a bunch of mosquitoes. God hates whining and complaining. He wants thankful, devoted, focused people. And he says so. 1 Timothy 6, 1. I won't turn back to that one. But it says, if you're servants, if you're slaves, comport yourself in such a manner that you will be an honor to me. We think we have problems. We're not even slaves. We're only slaves of Jesus Christ. His burden is easy. His yoke is light. We could be slaves. And in fact, many in the church of God today are going to wind up as slaves in foreign lands. I think I can prove that through many, many scriptures. And we've known that. But we always thought it was somebody else, not us. We were going to get wafted away to a place of safety. But brethren, it's not that easy. And God is making that message plain to us here. So we press down on God, and as a result, He is pressing down on us. So you can translate chapter 13 either way and still have a sensible explanation of what's happening. Maybe God had it done that way on purpose. You know, it's like, do you answer a fool according to his folly or not answer according to a, fool, a, a fool according to his folly? And the answer to that is, it just depends on which fool you're talking to. You've got to be able to discern your fools. Does this one deserve answering or not answering? Can we look at the scripture this way or that way? It fits both ways, as I see it. Verse 14, Therefore the flight shall perish from the swift. I'm back in Amos 2 now. Verse 14, Therefore the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his force, neither shall the mighty deliver himself. We think we're spiritually in good shape. God says we can't deliver ourselves. Neither shall he stand that handles the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that rides the horse deliver himself, and he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, says the Lord. Many are going to get stripped naked because they lean on their own spiritual um, strength, thinking that they are okay. That takes you back to Revelation 3. I'm okay. God says, no, you're blind and naked. Amos uses the same thing. I will make you naked. Now, the next three chapters all begin with hear this word or hear you this word. Listen, he says, three different times, three different chapters, three different thoughts. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So he's not just addressing parts of the church here. He says the whole family. Now, when I say that Israel might be referring to the, church, the uh, worldwide church of God at this point in a, in a similar situation, and Judah to those who have split off, you have to be careful with context because there are times when God refers to Israel as both houses. 
And I think that's what he's saying here. I'm referring to all of you now. Both houses, the whole family. And you only have I known of all the families of the earth. There are those who say that all the different church families, the different spiritual groups, are all going to be in the first resurrection because they accepted the Lord. But I think Amos gives the lie to that. Can two walk together except they be agreed? There's the first proof right there. We can't walk with all those people. They aren't agreed. And within the family, we can't walk together. We're not agreed. So disunity and disharmony is continuing. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den? If he have taken nothing, can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Look at the futility. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in the city and the Lord has not done it? Cities can be churches. <coughs> is there evil? Is there division? Is there splitting? Is there lack of agreement? And some say, well, God didn't do this. Satan's doing it all. He says very plainly right here, can it be done and I have not done it? I am allowing this. I am overseeing this. I am causing this. I am goading Satan to do this, as he did with Job. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? God says, I'm saying these things. I'm shouting them through these prophets. <clears throat> Who can but hear? And yet many ignore we don't want to hear what these prophets have to say as, as a church as a whole. He says, publish it in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt. Take it to the Egyptians. <laughs> Tell them what I'm doing to my church. Tell the Protestants, Egypt, what I'm doing to my church. Publish it. Let it be known. But God is not happy with his church. Assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria, the capital of Israel, not Judah. And behold, a great tumult in the midst thereof, and the oppressed in the midst thereof. Was there oppression and confusion and tumult? You bet, and we got out of it. God says, talk about it. Let it be known. <laughs> For they know not to do right, says the Lord, to store up violence and robbery in their palaces. We have been violated. We were robbed. Remember the expression, I was robbed? That's what happened to you and me. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down your strength from you, and your palaces shall be spoiled. It's going to fall. It's going to fall apart. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd takes out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out, out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed, and Damascus in a couch. They've gone to their enemies, they've gone to the Protestants, they've gone to the Catholics, and they're going to be ripped asunder. Verse 14, Then on the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. This could be symbolic of the auditorium, perhaps. They won't help to say, I'm in the church, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as Jeremiah says. Because he says it's going to be knocked down. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house, the wealth, 
will depart, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. Well, he's addressing the whole house of Israel here, and he says the great houses, the big churches, the little churches, as Isaiah says it, shall have an end. I am going to knock it flat, God says. Chapter 4. Hear this word, you kind of Bashan. Bashan is in Manasseh. That are in the mountains of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. God has sworn, this is serious, by his holiness, that lo, the day shall come upon you, that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. You won't have a choice, he says. It'll just be like a fish who bites a hook, and it'll be drug away. You shall go out of the breaches, every cow at that which is before her, and you shall cast them into the palace, or as my margin says, cast away the things of the palace. God's going to cast away the form of worship that has occurred there. And every cow is going to run for a break in the fence for his very life. Come to Bethel. I think there's some sarcasm here God is using. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression and bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes after three years. Go ahead and go through the form, the formality of true worship. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven, and proclaim and publish the free offerings, for this is like you, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. We're careful to do the formalities, but we miss the whole point. Much like the Pharisees, they missed love and mercy, justice. Kept the form, but lost the attitude, lost the devotion, lost the closeness, lost the heat of our first love. Now what does he do as a result of that? Because we did that, verse 6, And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Not much food to eat. You don't get your teeth dirty if you have... I mean, you get your teeth dirty if you have a lot to eat. They remain clean if there's not much going in your mouth. And one of bread in all your places... Yet have you not returned to me, says the Lord. So Hosea, Joel, now Amos says, you have not returned to me. You still don't have the attitude I'm seeking. And we see the results around us, don't I? Don't we? And also, verse 7, I have withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered to one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have you not returned to me, says the Lord. We find ourselves in this absolute very condition right now. People wandering about, trying to find good food, having difficulty finding it, finding it in one city, not in another city. It is not a total famine of the word yet. There is some truth, there's some veracity, there's some strength. But it's hard to find, and you have to wander from city to city to find it. It's not easily available. Now what has he done as a result of this? 
I have smitten you with blasting and mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased. The palm of Rome devoured them, yet have you not returned to me, says the Lord. Repeats it again, you've not returned to me. That's the whole key to this thing is returning to God. But what little work is trying to be done by various churches of God today, the palm of Rome is turned loose on, and it comes to nothing. All their work is eaten up through split, division, lack of funds, politics. On and on it goes. We're trying to do this. We're trying to do that. And God says, it isn't going to happen. Verse 10, I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. We see people sick spiritually, dead and dying all around us. Your young men have I slain with a sword and have taken away your horses. <laughs> we don't ride very fast anymore as a church, do we? We don't go very anywhere very quickly. we got no horses. we got no power. And I've made the stink of your camps to come up to your nostrils. Everything you try to do, he says, fails. And your work stinks, to put it colloquially. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. He says it again. Do we begin to get the point? We had better start getting on our knees like we have never gotten on our knees before. Verse 11, I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning, just like a stick in the fire, in a campfire. God says, I pulled you out. He uses the same analogy with Joshua there in Zechariah. We are all firebrands that God is plucking out of the fire. We were burning up. Is this an old saw? Yet have you not returned to me, says the Lord. Again he repeats it. We are so stubborn, so stiff-necked, our faces and our heads like rocks, he says. We will not break the yoke of Babylon off our necks. We will not repent of our sins. We will not turn to him without our hearts. And therefore, what is he going to do? He's already sent famine and blight and pestilence and mildew on the church of God. But the desired result has not occurred, brethren. We have to work harder. What comes next is not fun. Verse 12. Therefore, he says, I did this and you returned not. I did this and you returned not. I did this and you returned not. Therefore, what is coming next? And we've already seen these things. This is not a matter of ancient history. We have experienced, we have lived what the church has gone through in the last few years. And yet God says, you're not white hot. I'm still spewing you. Now I know this is probably not referring to us. This is probably referring to all those other churches out there. We're doing okay. And now I'm being a little sarcastic. Because I'm not doing okay. I still don't have my entire focus on God. It's so easy to get drawn here, there, somewhere else. 
But I think of God in the night watches a whole lot more than I used to. And I wake up thinking about these things a whole lot more than I used to. I hope I'm making some progress. Because this that's coming next, right here in the context, after what has already happened, is really, really scary. And we've already gone through what we've been reading about here in chapter 4, so we must not be very far from what he says in chapter 5. Shouldn't be a part of chapter break here. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, and because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet. For, lo, he that formed the mountains, and created the wind, and declared to man what is his thought, that makes the morning darkness, and treads upon the high places of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Remind you of Joel. In other words, you are going to deal directly with me now. And here is what I am going to do, O church of God. Hear you this word. Perhaps there is a break in thought there, because he, he uses this phrase again. Which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. Remember the book of Lamentations? We've been through it. John's been through it in the last few years. And the anger of God turned loose on his people Judah and Zion. They're primarily not just Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen. Matthew 25, remember the ten virgins? The virgin of Israel is fallen. They all went to sleep. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. There is no leader. There is no one we can all look to. The leaders are all stumbling and fumbling around, trying to do this and trying to do that, and God has spent fa sent famine and blight and pestilence, and nothing is, no work has been accomplished much in the last few years. Since Herbert Armstrong died, it's been basically nothing but a return to paganism, idolatry, and harlotry. There is none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, this is a statement from God himself, not the devil, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave an hundred, and that which went forth by an hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. God is going to decimate us. He's going to take it down to ten percent. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek you me, and you shall live. But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Now maybe here is the answer to this thing that's beginning to circulate around the church here I've noticed in the last few weeks, and that's this underground movement to have a sit-in, at the sale of the auditorium and the campus in Pasadena. To have to go to the government and try to stop, block the sale. Try to retain that auditorium for the church. Well, what was Bethel? What was Gilgal? What was Beersheba? Those were places that important things happened in Jacob's life and the life of others, in Israel, in other words. So they went there to worship. They went there to build altars. They went there because they thought the place was the answer. 
And people today are beginning to think maybe the place is the answer. If we can just get the auditorium back. But God says, don't go there. Don't do that. That isn't the key. So that's coming to nothing. I think the similarity is unescapable here. What is the problem? Seek you the Lord, verse 6, and you shall live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. That place, that auditorium, is not the answer. The temples were torn down in ancient Israel. The temples were torn down in Herod's time. The physical places are not the problem, God says. It's your hearts that have not returned to me. It is your focus and your love that I need. So whatever particular place we want to pick out, be it that auditorium dedicated to God, that is not the answer. It fell apart in that auditorium because of the problem with our hearts. So God says, seek me, don't seek Bethel. You who turn judgment to wormwood, verse 7, and leave off righteousness in the earth. Seek him that made the stars, verse 8, and so on. Verse 9, that strengthens the spoil against the strong, so that the spoil shall come against the fortress. God continuing with the thought from verse 8, who made, who made all these things. Verse 10, they hate him that rebukes in the gate. They abhor him that speaks uprightly. Now here's the reaction that people have to anyone who will say that we need rebuke. And I get it sometimes because I do speak out. Now, people don't... I, I've got it beautiful, actually. When people have complaints about me, they take them to John or Richard or John Reed or somebody else. They don't complain to me. As far as I'm concerned, I have no complaints against me because no one's ever complained to me. Isn't it beautiful? Now, John and Richard probably get tired of hearing it. What did Richard say last week? Quit complaining. Go to Matthew 18. If you got a complaint, go talk to the person. Maybe John and Richard will quit taking complaints about me. You think I'm wrong? Why don't you talk to me about it? I don't know why I even say this. I'm sure the complaints have all stopped. But I'm smiling. <laughs> But let's do things right. Let's do things the way Richard said. All right, verse 11. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and you take from him burdens of wheat, you build houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. God says you can build these churches up. You can use the wheat, the produce, the tithes, the offerings of God's people, but you're not going to live in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just, they take a bribe, they turn aside the poor and the gate from their right. That which we have a right to, we're not being served with. The tithes and offerings are sent in, God says, to serve his people. But oh, we don't have time for you people. We don't have time to take care of the churches. We need to preach the gospel, or we need to run off to a Protestant uh, 
convention, and worldwide at least. Therefore, verse 13, the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. The ministry is going to abuse you. The churches are going to abuse you. Sometimes it's best just to go off, keep your mouth shut, and realize this is what's going to happen, and don't get your head cut off because you get in the way. Seek good and not evil that you may live. For the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as you have spoken. Hate the evil, love the good, and establish judgment in the gate. It may be. Now here is a contingency. Verse 15, second half. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He says, I'm going to cut it down to 10%. And then he says, seek good, establish justice and judgment. And maybe I will be gracious to you. So even to the remnant, there is a contingency. If we consider ourselves a part of the remnant, and I hope that I am, and I hope that all of you are, I hope we're not cast away or go into tribulation. I hope we're part of that remnant. But he lays the onus on us to turn to him with our whole heart. Verse 17, And in all vineyards shall be wailing. All the churches that have been built since we came out of worldwide. For I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe to you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Most of the church is going to go into tribulation, it appears. Only a remnant will be saved out if they obey. It'll be like a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. There's no escaping. God says, you can't get away. I am going to pressure you. Verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not sniff in your solemn assemblies. I won't suck air in my nose because I hate what's going on. Take you away from me, the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your vials. But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. This is what I'm after. You can stand there and sing, but if your heart isn't with me, I can't stand the sound of your songs. If you get your heart right, I'll love to hear you sing. <laughs> but because of the evil and the idolatry and the lack of attention on our father and on our potential husband, God says, I can't take your music. I can't take your feasts. You're there to entertain yourself. You're not there to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, or chapter 6, excuse me. How much time do I have left? Very little here, and we've got uh, three chapters to go. Maybe I'll try to finish this up. Chapter 6, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, both houses here, Judah and Israel, the whole thing, which are named chief or first fruits. My margin says, of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. Talking about the church or not, the first fruits. Ask to Calda and see, from hence go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms? Are their border greater than your border? Why do you go to this world? Come to me. You that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near. This thing isn't close. We've got 10, 20, 30, 40 years left, people will say. 
200 years, I've heard. Who'll bid 300? And woe to them that say it's far off. That lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock. Addresses the ministry. Who sits back and says, I've got a paycheck and this thing's far off and I'm enjoying eating the lambs. Their tithes and their offerings and living off that. So when their paycheck goes away, they quickly join another organization and will give them a paycheck of the flock. They chant to the sound of the viol and invent themselves instruments of music like David. They, they drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved over the affliction of Joseph. They're not really that concerned over God's people. They're so busy doing their thing and drinking wine out of bowls, not glasses, What an indictment against the ministry. Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive. I'm going to deal with the ministry first, he says. Sounds like Revelation 11. Start measuring Jerusalem at the altar. Verse 9, it shall come to pass that there remain ten in one house that they shall die. Well, notice verse uh, 8 also in the middle. It says, I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. He doesn't like what he sees down here. Verse 11, For behold, the Lord commands, and he will smite the great house with breaches, or divisions, and the little house with clefts, or divisions, cleaving rocks in two. So the big churches and the little churches are going to have divisions and splits similar to what was happening in the setting of Hosea, Joel, and Amos, which was in the days of Jeroboam, when Israel was divided. Happening again today. Shall horses run upon the rock, will one plow there with oxen? For you have turned judgment into gall, and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. All our righteousness is like poison, God says. You which rejoice in a thing of nothing would say, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? We're going to go out and save the world. We're going to learn the world. Oh, no, we're not. Those who think they are are going to be sorely disappointed, Amos says. But behold, I will raise up against you a national half of Israel, says the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hamath, that was the northern boundary, under the river of the wilderness down at the Dead Sea, which is the south boundary, from north to south. The whole thing, God says, it's coming down. And you and me with it, if we don't turn to justice and righteousness. Chapter 7, Thus says the Lord God, Thus has the Lord God showed to me, and behold, he formed grasshoppers, when? In the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. Now here we have some movement in time. We have the former temple under Herbert Armstrong, which has been basically, and is being destroyed, and coming down until there's not one stone left upon top of another. And he says then he is going to build a latter temple after the former and the latter. All right, in the time of the very beginnings of the shoots of the latter grove, we're going to see some more grasshoppers. Verse 2, And it came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech you, by whom shall Jacob rise, for he is small? 
We're devastated. We've been knocked down to 10%. There's hardly anything left. By whom shall Jacob rise? Remember it said no man could lead. A couple of chapters back, wherever it was. The Lord relented for this. It shall not be, says the Lord. Thus has the Lord God showed to me. And behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire, and it devoured the great deep and did eat up a part. So Amos raises the question again. Second time. Then said I, O Lord God, cease. I beseech you. Is that not our prayer sometimes? When is this going to cease? When will blessing return? I beseech you, by whom shall Jacob rise, for he is small? Now this is very encouraging. The Lord relented for this. This also shall not be, says the Lord God. I will, in other words, send someone by whom it will arise. Interesting that he said it twice, because God's going to send two. There's no leader otherwise. Verse 7, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you say? You ask a question, you ask it twice. Now I've got this plumb line here, what do you see? And I said a plumb line. Now what is a plumb line? It measures the vertical in a building. It measures righteousness in the church. It measures uprightness. Is this thing straight up, or is it canted off like the Tower of Pisa? The Lord said, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. I am going to measure and see what is upright. Now, where else do you see a plumb line spoken of in the Bible? Very few, if you'll look in the concordance. Revelation 11 where he says he will set a plumb line by the two witnesses. They are the ones who are going to measure for him the uprightness, the verticality of the temple. Haggai shows that they will rebuild the temple as a latter temple, and that it will be built right in this case, and that God will send peace there. You go back to Zechariah 2 and Zechariah 3 and 4. He says he will set a measuring line in Jerusalem, a measuring line measures more the around and the up and, and the height, the height, the width, the depth. So you've got to have it measured both vertically, and you have to measure the size of it. How much is left of God's church? How big is the remnant? These both have to be done to the church of God. So here he's beginning to give us the answer, brethren. I'm going to knock it down, and then I'm going to raise it up, and I'm going to set the two witnesses there to do it. That's why the question was asked twice. Not one, but two leaders. God is going to send us. And it's going to get done right. You don't find plumb line in the Bible, so far as I saw, in any other context than that which I just gave you. And that's how he says he is going to begin to solve the problem in the church. I will not again pass by them anymore, into verse 8. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I'll rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So I'm going to cut down Israel. Now, how did people react to this? Verse 10. 
Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. These words are not easy to take. Because God says, I sent you mildew and pestilence, and it didn't do any good. Now I'm going to devastate you, cut you down. That's next. We have not seen the end of this. Amaziah said to Amos, So you see her, go flee away from the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there. We don't want to hear this in Israel. Worldwide certainly doesn't want to hear it, do they? And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Don't listen to Amaziah. Let it all hang out. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit, just a laborer out here among the flocks and the herds and the plantings. Now therefore hear you the word of the Lord. This isn't me talking. I'm nothing. I just follow sheep around or cattle and I pick fruit. Well, this isn't me. This is the word of God. You say, prophesy not against Israel and drop not your word against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided by line, and you shall die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. So the mother, <coughs> the wife, is destroyed. And so are your sons and daughters. O daughters of Israel and daughters of Judah, we too are coming down. Well, I'm out of time. Let's see if we can wrap this up in about five minutes because I don't want to come back and do another sermon on two chapters. Then he showed a basket of summer fruit. And he, he says, I'll not again pass by my people. The songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, said the Lord God. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. Christians lying dead and dying all around. But where are the minds of God's people still? on materiality. When's the sun going down? When's the new moon going to be over so we can go out and make money? How frustrated God must get to give all these warnings and tear the church down and send blight and mildew and then say, I'm going to destroy it down to only a remnant. And that's all that the two witnesses, Joshua and Zerubbabel, have to work with. So the remnant will come to them. How hard is it to get our minds off the things of Babylon and materialism and what we have around us? Verse, 10, verse 8, Shall not the land tremble for this? I will darken the earth in the clear day. I will turn your feasts in the morning, all your songs in the lamentation. This is what's coming next. Verse 11, Behold, the days come, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. So this is different than what he said earlier. Earlier he said two or three would come from two or three cities, and two or three cities would come to one city, and so on. And there they would find a certain amount of food. And that's the way it's been the last few years. But now, brethren, he's going to send total famine. 
from sea to shining sea you will not find it. Matthew 25 says, Go to them that buy, you virgins of Israel that fell and will not rise again. <laughs> Go to them that sell. Amen. The only two left are going to be the two witnesses at that point. Israel, the church, most of the church is going into captivity. Zechariah says a third will come through the tribulation. In that day shall appear virgins, and the young men faint for thirst. Our oil is gone out. We have nothing. They that swear by the sin of Samaria, and say that thy God, O Dan, lives, and the manner of Beersheba lives, even they shall fall and never rise up again. God's knocking this thing down for good. Verse chapter 9 now. I saw the Lord standing on the altar, and he said, Smite the little of the door that the post may shake. The leaders first. Zechariah says he's going to get rid of some shepherds. Chapter 11. Cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with a sword. He that flees of them shall not flee away, and he that escapes of them shall not be delivered. The ministry has to be retrained or replaced. Oh, they dig to hell. I'll find them. The top of Carmel. Carmel. God is going to show that He is God. Chapter 6, I mean verse 6, the last phrase. The Lord is His name. Verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. So the church is coming down, coming apart, and Christ's prophecy in Matthew 24, 2 is going to be worked upon us. Now one stone left on top of another. But I will not utterly destroy, I'll save a remnant. For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel. Have we been feeling sifted lately? Among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet you shall not, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Romans 11:26. Paul quoted this. God is going to save Israel ultimately. He's going to save the church ultimately. But the tares weren't converted in the first place, so a lot of numbers are going to go away, and a remnant that is faithful is going to re return. In that day, will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches, the divisions are going to close, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. So God is going to return unity to us, closeness and peace. This isn't just millennial. This is talking about the church possibly in the place of safety, <coughs> or as it is formed prior to going to a place of safety. They, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Now this is very interesting. Focus on that. That they may possess the remnant of Edom, because the next book talks about Edom and Esau, and how they destroy the church. And of all the heathen which are called by my name. Some heathen are called by God's name, but they're still heathens. says the Lord that does this. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him that sowed seeds. And all of these things that we think are millennial, they're going to happen within the church in the latter temple. Peace, prosperity is going to return. Read the book of Haggai if you don't believe it. And that's talking about the church prior to Christ's coming in Haggai and Zechariah. Verse 15, I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. So Israel is not going to be, the remnant is not going to be taken captive into foreign lands. The remnant is going to remain in their land, and God is going to bless. 
God is going to return the blessings to the church. So the end of the book of Amos is beautiful if you can get past the rest of it. So my plea to you and to me is to return to God with all our heart, as he told us several times in this book, and hear you this word. Because our peace, our sanity, our prosperity, whether we live or die, physically and eternally, depends upon it. That is what Hosea, Joel, and Amos all tell us. Now we're going to go on to some other books and talk about other things, but that's the message, that's the burden. And we can shake the burden of Babylon off our necks and take his yoke, which is easy and light, and keep pulling, or we can bog down in Babylon and die. Choose ye this day, as he said in Deuteronomy. End of transmission.